Welcome to this special presentation of the unabridged audiobook of Afterlife, a rainy day investigation on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs fiction podcast. Afterlife was inspired by a real-life investigation conducted by co-author and parapsychologist Lloyd Auerbach that was the case that made him believe in ghosts. Although Afterlife is book two in the series, you can enjoy it as a standalone story. However, you'll likely also want to listen to Near Death, the novel that introduces Dr. Jennifer Day, anthropology professor and parapsychologist, to her skeptical partner, former police detective Nate Rainey. In Afterlife, Danny, a young boy, makes friends with the ghost of a woman, Maureen, who used to live in the house his family has moved into. He's the only one who can see and hear her. Maureen died 15 years earlier, trying to make her escape from a botched bank robbery, at which time she hid millions of dollars in cash and valuables. Unfortunately, she can't remember where, but that's not going to stop her old partners from doing everything they can to find their long-lost treasure, no matter what the cost. If you enjoyed this free presentation, I hope you'll take a minute to post a review on Amazon, Audible, and Goodreads, as well as your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to listen to Near Death, along with my weekly short stories, here on Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs. And now, Part 1 of Afterlife, A Rainy Day Investigation. Prologue Danville, California, 2007 The heavy steel door to the bank vault slowly swung open, and the man and woman who opened it stared inside. Told you it was a piece of cake, Dale Everly said to his wife, Maureen. I never doubted you, she replied. They smiled and embraced. So far, everything was going according to plan. They had spent most of the night working to open the vault, with Dale doing the bulk of the work and Maureen handing him the necessary tools while monitoring the police scanner. Six months of planning. That's what it had taken to get this far. Maureen had been the inside man, or woman rather, working as a bank teller. She kept track of when the bank was flushed with cash and cultivated a relationship with the assistant manager. He would often ask her to stay late and help him close the bank. She used those opportunities to secretly memorize his security codes and make wax impressions of his keys. With their share of the score, Maureen and Dale planned to escape their desperate situation. They would leave this one-horse town, move east, buy a house, and start a family. Come on, we have to hurry, Dale urged. They entered the vault, each carrying an empty duffel bag. The large, secure area doubled as a safe deposit box room. A steel gate separated the walls of boxes from the cash. Dale set a pager on a steel table in the middle of the room. He picked up a large circular saw and started cutting through the deadbolt, standing in his way to the stacks of bundled bills. Meanwhile, Maureen took her bag to one of the walls of safe deposit boxes and pulled out a diamond-tipped power drill. They had purchased boxes like these on eBay and practiced breaking into them. It wasn't as easy as they made it look in the movies, but she managed to get the whole process down to three minutes or less. First, she drilled into the keyhole. Then she inserted a jig that allowed her to remove the lock cylinder. Finally, by anchoring a threaded bit in the hole and using a tool that pulled on the door with incredible force, the small door protecting the box opened. Dale finished cutting his way through the gate and filled his bag with cash as Maureen emptied the contents of her first safe deposit box, a few gold coins and some expensive-looking watches, into her duffel. Their instructions were to target certain size boxes. The wide, flat ones most often held papers like deeds and insurance policies, while the largest ones were infrequently rented. 
It was the ones that were the size of a shoebox, where people kept jewelry, coins, and other valuables. Dale stuffed some of the cash that didn't fit into his duffel into Maureen's. There was about two hundred grand in cash, he reported. Not what they had hoped for. During its busiest weeks, the bank would be holding nearly twice that. But that didn't bother them. They had been assured that it was a safe deposit boxes that would make this job worth their while. Soon they fell into a rhythm, with Dale extruding the lock cylinders and Marine popping open the doors and emptying the container's contents into her duffel. On their way into the bank, they hadn't tripped any alarms, thanks to the codes Marine had acquired. But a fail-safe sent a silent alarm directly to the local police if the vault was opened outside of regular bank hours. There was nothing they could do to prevent that. They had roughly eight minutes to get away before the police arrived. But they had an ace up their sleeves. An insider with the police would delay that alert. He would page them if for any reason he could no longer keep the silent alarm silent. If all went according to plan, the only thing limiting how much time they had was the early morning arrival of the bank manager. Maybe we should go, Maureen suggested. Two hundred thousand is a lot. Not split four ways, Dale reminded her. In addition to their partner at the police station, there was another man due his share, the mastermind, who had planned and recruited them for the heist. Dale checked his watch. We've got plenty of time. Besides, I think there's something in these boxes our benefactor really wants. If we don't get it, we might have bigger problems than being fugitives. Marine pulled out another container. It was empty except for what looked like a velvet-covered jewelry box, something perhaps big enough for a necklace. She resisted the urge to peek inside added it to the contents of her duffel bag, and kept on working. Chrissy Sanger was five years old, old enough, she had decided, that if she got thirsty in the middle of the night, she could get up and get her own glass of water. The sky was starting to turn a pretty orange color outside her bedroom window. She slid from her bed and walked quietly toward the door, but then turned quickly and grabbed the doll she had been sleeping with before she headed toward the kitchen. Her favorite sippy cup was sitting in the dish rack, she carefully placed her doll on the kitchen table and pulled one of the chairs next to the sink to stand on so she could reach the cup. She snapped on the lid, but quickly realized she needed to remove it to fill it up from the dispenser in the fridge. Her tiny fingers struggled to pry it loose. When she had finally pulled it free, the lid popped off and flew across the room, hitting their sleeping dog on the nose. The animal opened his eyes and saw Chrissy standing before him. Sorry, Boxer, she said. Boxer decided it was time to wake up anyway, got up and pushed his way through the dog door. Chrissy lost interest in her water. She traded her cup for the doll on the kitchen table and followed Boxer outside. In the yard, Chrissy saw Boxer peeing on some flowers. Ew, Boxer, not on the daisies. The dog glanced at Chrissy as he continued to pee. Suddenly, a squirrel ran along the top of the fence. Boxer's instincts kicked in. He barked at the squirrel and ran after it until he reached the gate. It was ajar. Boxer nosed it open and bounded after the squirrel. Boxer, come back here, Chrissy shouted. She ran after him through the open gate. It slammed shut behind her with a clunk. Chrissy suddenly felt afraid. She clutched her doll close as she continued into the front yard. Boxer was staring up at the branches of a tree where the squirrel was sitting. Boxer, she shouted. Come on, boy, come on. Boxer looked back toward Chrissy his tongue hanging out as he panted. The squirrel made a run for it. Boxer heard the creature scampering away, and his attention shifted back to his quarry. He ran down the street after it. Chrissy knew she wasn't supposed to leave the yard, but neither was Boxer. What if he got lost? Or hurt? She wasn't supposed to cross the street by herself, 
but if she just went to the end of the block, that would be okay, wouldn't it? She ran after Boxer, into the brightening morning light. Leah McDonald sat at the 911 desk of the Danville Police Department playing solitaire on the computer. Technically, he wasn't supposed to be doing anything other than waiting for calls and monitoring the incoming alarms from various businesses and the handful of banks and credit unions downtown. But tonight was slow, and there was really only one reason he had volunteered to cover for the overnight operator while she was on vacation. The alarm on the vault at the Danville Bank had sent in an alert about 20 minutes ago. The standard procedure was to dispatch one of the overnight patrol cars. However, the system had an override. In case a bank employee forgot to turn it off, they could call in and let the police know it was a false alarm. The operator at the 911 desk would click the Dismiss button when it popped up on the computer screen, and the alarm would be paused for 10 minutes. So far, Liam had clicked that button twice. It was due to show up again in the next minute, and he would click it again. The plan was to keep snoozing the alarm until shift change at 7. By then, the Everleys would be done and gone. Normally, Liam would be in one of the patrol cars cruising around overnight. Danville was a good-sized town. It was usually pretty quiet and it avoided many of the big city problems that had affected other communities in the more metropolitan areas. The chief had been surprised when Liam offered to fill in for the vacationing operator. Usually Liam was asking his boss for more real police work. Liam's partner didn't seem to mind being on his own temporarily and the chief saw it as an easy way to fill the vacancy. The only other people in the station were Sergeant Cooper, who manned the front desk in case there were any walk-ins, and Isaac, the janitor, who gave the station and the small jail on the back a good cleaning every night. Cooper was struggling over a Sudoku puzzle, and Isaac was currently running a vacuum between the empty desks. It had been an uneventful night. Sometimes you'd get a drunk or two, or a domestic disturbance that had escalated to the point where one or both of the parties needed to be arrested. But tonight there was nothing. Liam scanned the cards of the solitaire game on his screen as he clicked through the virtual deck, looking for a play he could make. Frustrated, he clicked on the button to start a new game. The 911 line lit up and started beeping. Liam was startled. He closed the solitaire window and put on the headset resting around his neck. He waved at Isaac to kill the vacuum and then pressed the button on his keyboard to answer the call. 911, what's your emergency? He asked as the caller's address appeared on his screen. Cooper lifted his head from his puzzle and looked to watch Liam from across the room. Okay, slow down. Liam said to the caller. Are you sure she's missing? She's not hiding in a closet or something? He asked. The distraught parent loudly assured Liam in very colorful language that their little girl was indeed missing. All right. I need a description of what she looks like and what she was wearing. We'll put out an alert. Liam typed the information onto the screen. No, just sit tight in case she comes home and we'll have someone come to you, he instructed. You might want to start calling her friend's parents. Let them know to be on the lookout as well. Liam tapped the button that switched the headset over to the police band radio and issued an all-points bulletin, repeating the description the parents had given him. He sat back, wondering how this unexpected situation would affect the Everleys' escape. The little girl lived a few blocks from the downtown area. All the cars on duty would be converging there. But they would be focused on looking for the little girl, wouldn't they? Then again, a couple driving around in the early morning hours might warrant a stop by an eager patrolman to see if they might have a five-year-old in the back seat. He contemplated dialing the pager number from the disposable cell phone he had in his pocket, but he could do little more than alert them that something was wrong, not what precisely was going on. It might do more harm than good to deviate from the plan at this point. McDonald, what are you doing sitting there? Sergeant Cooper asked. Get your ass into a car and get out there. 
It's all hands on deck for a missing kid. You know that. Who's going to man the phones? Liam asked. I'll take care of that, Cooper replied, tossing Liam the keys to his cruiser. Liam caught them awkwardly, then took off his headset and stood up. He was staring at the spot on the screen in which the silent alarm for the bank would show up shortly. Get a move on, McDonald, Cooper said as he ambled over to the 911 station. Liam nodded, patting his pockets and looking around the desk as if he was searching for something, stalling. Just as Sergeant Cooper arrived, the alert appeared on screen and Liam quickly clicked the dismiss button. He nodded to the sergeant and headed for the front door. Can I help? Isaac asked. Just keep on doing what you're doing, Cooper answered as he sat down and put on the headphones. He started pressing buttons on the keyboard until he heard a dial tone in his ears. He punched in a number and waited for someone to answer. Sorry to wake you, Chief, but we have a situation. Chief Williams listened as Sergeant Cooper told him about the 911 call regarding the missing girl. Well, I guess I better get over there, he grumbled. Send one of the cars over to pick me up in ten minutes, Coop. The chief hung up the phone and looked over at his wife, Barb. She was already out of bed and slipping into her robe. No need for you to get up, the chief said to his wife. Nonsense. I'd be up in ten minutes anyway. I'll put some coffee in a the thermos for you, she said, then padded off toward the kitchen. The chief sighed, lifted himself out of bed, and headed over to his closet. He'd been hoping his last month on the job would be quiet. And abducted, or God forbid murdered, little girl was not how he wanted to end his career. He grabbed a clean, pressed uniform from the closet. Barb was meticulous about making sure he always had several ready. He tossed his pajamas into the hamper and got dressed. Liam walked slowly out to the cruiser, when he was sure he was out of view of anyone in the station, and no early morning dog walker or delivery man was looking his way. He pulled out the disposable cell from his pocket. He flipped it open and hit the number one key in the asterisk to speed dial the pager. Nothing happened. The screen was dark. He held his finger over the power button and there was a flash of light as the screen came to life. It started to display logos and messages and then shut off. He pressed the power button again. This time, there was nothing. When was the last time he had charged it? Had he even bothered to plug it in since he bought it at the truck stop off the interstate? He unlocked the car and checked to see if Cooper had a phone charger plugged in. There was nothing. He checked the glove compartment and found a cigarette lighter adapter with a short cord attached. He inspected the plug at the end and saw it was the same shape and size that would fit into the jack on his phone. He plugged it in. It took only a few seconds for the screen to light up again, but it felt like minutes. He smashed his thumb down on the power button, and an icon showing that the battery was charging appeared along with a message. Battery level too low. Try again later. Liam snapped the phone closed and squeezed it in his hand until it felt like he was going to crush it. Then he dropped it on the passenger seat, started the car, and drove off into the early dawn. The patrol car pulled up in front of Chief Williams' house just as he was walking out the front door, a thermos of hot coffee in one hand. The driver got out to open the passenger side. Get back in the car. I can open my own door, the chief ordered. The young officer ran back to the driver's side and slid behind the wheel. The chief settled in beside him, held a hand up indicating he wanted the driver to wait until he took a sip from his thermos before driving off. Do you know where we're going? The chief asked. Yes, sir. The family's house over on Arroyo, the officer answered. All right, the chief said, squeezing his thermos into a cup holder. Let's go. They pulled away from the curb and made a U-turn on the empty street. A voice crackled over the radio. Chief Williams, are you out there? asked Sergeant Cooper. The chief grabbed the microphone for the radio and pressed the talk button. 
Yeah, I'm on my way to the family's home. What's up, Coop? I've got a silent alarm at the Danville Bank, he said. Jesus, when it rains, the chief said. He checked his watch and then pressed the talk button again. Larry probably went in early and forgot to disable it. Who's the closest unit? It's actually on our way, sir, the driver said. The chief nodded. All right, we'll take a peek through the window, see what's going on. He addressed Cooper over the radio. I'll take a look on my way over to the family. Do we have anyone else with them yet? Yes, yeah, sir, Lewis is there. Okay, let them know we'll join them as soon as we can. The chief unclipped a key ring from his belt. The chief of police kept a key for all the major businesses in town. He flipped through them until he found the one for the front door of the Danville Bank. Liam drove down Main Street and pulled over a block from the bank. Another patrol car passed him, driving slowly in the opposite direction. He exchanged a nod with the officer, then reached down and picked up his phone. He flipped it open and pressed the power button. The phone cycled through the startup screens until it was ready. Then he hit the speed dial sequence again. The pager service answered. He punched in a single number, zero, then the pound key, and disconnected the call. He immediately turned the phone off, unplugged it from the charger, and shoved it in his pocket. The pager buzzed. Dale and Maureen stopped what they were doing and turned toward the table. It buzzed again, the vibration causing it to topple over onto its side. Dale checked his watch. Shit, something's wrong. They listened for a minute. I don't hear any sirens, Maureen said. Suddenly, the police scanner squelched to life and voices crackled over its speaker, exchanging updates about a missing girl. Doesn't sound like they're talking about us, Maureen remarked. Not yet. Let's move, Dale said, a tone of panic in his voice. They were supposed to have a good half-hour lead before the police knew they had been at the bank. Now they had at most eight minutes, probably less, if there happened to be a patrol car close to downtown. Maureen dropped her tools in the duffel bag with the cash and valuables and zipped it up. Dale grabbed the other one as well as the equipment bag. He turned off the scanner and added it, too. They headed for the back door of the bank. Their car was parked in the alley a few doors down. Maureen looked out the door. The alley was deserted. Shit, Dale whispered. What is it? The pager. I forgot the pager. Go get it. I'll wait here. No, you go get the car and then swing by to pick me up. Maureen nodded, grabbed her bag, and walked out of the back door of the bank. Dale left his duffel bags and doubled back to the vault. Although the pager was an anonymous burner, there might be fingerprints, maybe DNA. Perhaps the page could be traced. He wasn't going to take any chances that the police might put the squeeze on Liam to spill the beans on them. He reached the vault, grabbed the pager, and spun round to leave. Freeze! Hands in the air! A deep smoker's voice ordered. The police chief was standing in the bank lobby holding his gun in both hands. It crossed Dale's mind to make a run for it but Marine still had a chance to escape if he could stall them. He raised his hands in the air. Another officer entered behind the chief, one hand hovering near his holster. He spotted the pager clutched in Dale's hand and immediately drew his gun. He's got a weapon, the young officer said. Dale held his hands higher. It's a pager, he shouted back, in a tone he hoped conveyed he was not armed or dangerous. Drop it, the chief said. Dale let the pager fall from his hands. It hit the ground and broke apart. On your knees, the officer ordered. Dale knelt down, still holding his hands high. The officer grabbed Dale's arm and twisted it behind his back. Then he grabbed the other and cuffed both wrists together. Anyone else back there? The chief asked warily. Dale shook his head. While the younger officer kept Dale restrained, the chief cautiously entered the vault. It was empty. 
He grabbed the radio from his belt. Cooper, this is the chief. We've got a suspect in custody at the bank. Send backup. We found the girl. She was at a park, cold and scared, hugging the family dog, Cooper reported. I'll send over all available units. The chief sighed, relieved. Okay. Have them set up roadblocks around downtown. Roger, Cooper replied. Chief Williams scanned the interior of the vault. About two-thirds of the medium-sized boxes were empty. He looked around the vault and didn't find what he was looking for. Where was the cash and the contents of the boxes? The chief walked up to Dale. Where's your partner? he asked. I was working alone, Dale replied. Then where's the money? the chief asked. Dale stared at the floor. Hopefully Marine could still get away if he could keep them preoccupied long enough. He prayed that she was smart enough to drive to safety when he didn't return. The chief kept his gun at the ready as he walked down the hallway that led to the back door. Out in the alley, Marine walked the fifty yards to the car with quick, purposeful strides. She didn't want to draw more attention than necessary by running. The car was parked down the alley behind the barber shop, which didn't open until noon. Marine made it to the station wagon without being seen. She opened the back of the car and tossed the duffel bag in among two other identical bags. She grabbed a baseball hat and a black satin jacket with red and gold lettering and slipped them on, pulling the hat low on her forehead. Once behind the wheel, she glanced at the rearview mirror. No sign of Dale. She started the car and headed out of the narrow alley to turn around and pick him up. The plan was to head straight for Diablo Road and then I-680 and head north, then west. They had told their friends and family they were planning a trip to Vegas, so their absence wouldn't draw any immediate suspicion. Marine eased out of the alley into the street, planning to make a U-turn and drive through the alley in the opposite direction to pick up Dale. It would add a couple more left turns to their escape route. Not something she was comfortable with. She checked her watch. How long had it been? One minute? Maybe two? She waited as a bread truck making early morning deliveries passed. Then she started to make a sweeping counterclockwise turn back where she came from. From the far end of the alley, a police car approached, its lights flashing. She slammed on the brakes. Her heart was racing. The police cruiser pulled up to the back door of the bank and two officers got out. They drew their guns and approached the rear entrance. Marine sighed with relief realizing they hadn't noticed her. But now there was no way she could pick up Dale without getting caught. Maureen eased off the brake and continued down the street instead of making the full U-turn into the alley. She listened for the sound of gunshots, so concerned and distracted, she didn't notice the vehicle that appeared in front of her. Another police car. There was a single officer inside. Hey, careful there, he shouted to her. Maureen recognized him as a regular customer at the bank. The officer got out of his vehicle and walked up to her car. Marine quickly gathered her thoughts and rolled down the window. Sorry, I didn't see you there. What's going on? She asked innocently, nodding down the alley. I was going to cut through to avoid the light. The officer regarded her suspiciously. What are you doing out this early? Heading over to get set up for soccer practice, she said, tilting her hat so the police could see the team logo for the Danville Nuggets on it. You get those girls out of bed this early? Believe it or not, they usually get there before me, she answered with a forced smile. The officer's eyes roamed from Marine to the back of her car. It was filled with soccer balls and duffel bags. Mind if I take a look in the back? he asked. Sure, go ahead. Can you step out of the car, ma'am? he asked politely. Okay, Marine said, then asked again, curious. What's going on? The officer waited for her to get out of the car before answering. There was an alarm at the bank. 
he told her. Can you open up the back, please? Maureen walked around to the rear of the car and opened the hatch. It swung open and she stepped back. The policeman reached inside and pulled the nearest duffel bag toward him. He unzipped it and looked inside. It was full of orange rubber cones and some netting. He reached for the next bag and opened it up. There were extra cleats, a collection of dirty red vests, and a foot pump. Maureen scanned the street, looking for an escape route, some place she might be able to run to before getting shot, some way to survive. The officer reached for the third duffel. His radio crackled. Jones, where are you? A voice asked through the tinny speaker of the walkie-talkie. Marie thought she recognized it. It sounded like Liam McDonald, their accomplice. The officer pressed the talk button on the microphone clipped to his shoulder. Alley, West End. Secure the rear bank exit. Over. Ten-four. Over. He pushed the bags back in place in the rear of the car and closed the hatch. Have a good practice, he said to Marie, then walked briskly back to his own car. He climbed in and drove into the alley. Marine got back into her car and pulled away, confident that with all of Danville's police converging on the downtown area, that once she was out of the city center, she could blow through the stop signs and red lights to get as far away as quickly as possible. They had planned for this contingency, for dozens of situations. Marine had estimated their chances of success at nearly 100%. Nearly. Obviously, there was a chance something could go wrong. And it had. The missing girl they heard about on the scanner had thrown all of their assumptions out the window. Marie knew Dale would keep the police off her trail for as long as possible. She would do the same for him. Right now, she needed to get out of town and out of the state. She'd take I-80 to Reno, blend in with the crowds of the casinos. Once she was safe, she'd find some way to help him. But she needed to go home first. She needed to stash the money and safe deposit box contents. If she was caught with it, she had no chance. There was some money at the house that couldn't be traced back to the bank. She would pack it and some clothes, maybe grab some keepsakes. Maureen couldn't return to Danville or her family home ever again. That was no longer an option. She'd find a lawyer for Dale and wait until they could be together again. The chief approached the back door to the bank. It started to open. He raised his gun, his heart pounding. Two police officers entered, their guns drawn as well. They saw the chief and lowered their weapons. Did you see anyone out there? The chief asked. The officers shook their heads. No, the alley was clear, one of them answered. The chief put his gun away and approached the two duffel bags sitting in the hallway. He opened one of them up. It was filled with tools and equipment, likely the means of opening the bank's vault. The second bag was stuffed full of cash. The chief stared at the two bags, thinking, What is it, chief? He emptied about forty safe deposit boxes in that vault, he replied. Yeah, so? The officer shrugged. Where's the stuff from the boxes? I've only got cash and tools here. He grabbed his radio. All units, we have a suspect on the loose from the bank robbery. Be on the lookout for someone. Liam listened to the broadcast from the chief. Everly's wife had managed to get away. She was smarter than he gave her credit for, though he wondered if she knew he was the one who had called that eager patrolman off her while she was making her escape. It would be crazy to try and follow her at this point. There was a rendezvous out of state where he was supposed to meet up with the Everleys and the Mastermind, but he didn't see that happening. How long did they have before Dale talked? Or would he do everything he could to protect his wife? How long before they found out who he was and converged in the farmhouse they had on the outskirts of town? Would she be crazy enough to go there? Maybe she had left something behind, some indication of where she might go, what she might be thinking. 
He turned off the radio and put the car in gear, trying to remember how to get to the Everly house. Dale was escorted into the police station, his hands cuffed behind his back. He had screwed up, not in the execution of the plan, but in thinking it was a good idea in the first place, and his biggest regret was involving Maureen. This way, one of the officers instructed, leading Dale into a small room at the back of the police station where there was a fingerprinting station and a camera for mugshots. They uncuffed Dale and fingerprinted him. Do we have a name? One of the officers asked. Not yet. He's taken the whole you have a right to remain silent thing seriously. We'll have to wait for his prints to come back before we get an ID. That's if he's in the system. Dale was offered a hand wipe to clean the ink off his fingers. An officer refastened his cuffs and positioned him in front of the camera. The flash went off. Turn to your left, the officer instructed. Another flash. Isaac passed by, pushing his mop as an excuse to see what all the fuss was about. Hi, Dale, he said when he saw the prisoners. The officers exchanged a look. Isaac, you know this man? Sure, that's Mr. Everly, Isaac replied. We get our hair cut at the same place. Mr. Reuben, the barber's really nice, he added. Chief Williams saw the small crowd in the records room. What's going on over here? Why isn't the prisoner in a cell? He asked. Well, Chief, it turns out Detective Isaac here cracked the case for us. This here is Dale Everly, one of the officers explained. Is that right? The chief asked, smiling at the janitor who shuffled sheepishly. Well done, Isaac. Well done. Maureen arrived at the old farmhouse, half expecting it to be surrounded by police. Maybe they hadn't identified Dale yet. But Danville was a small town. It wouldn't take long to find out who he was, that he was married, and where he was living. Soon the old house would be crawling with cops. She pulled the station wagon into the driveway and stepped out, taking a moment to brush off the dirt and underbrush she had accumulated hiding the duffel bag. She ran to the front door, opened it, rushed inside, and up the stairs. From her bedroom closet she removed a large backpack that was stuffed with a few days' clothes and toiletries. She pulled a small flat box from a bottom drawer and stuffed it into the top, then added the contents of her jewelry box to a side pocket. Maureen stepped onto the bed and took a framed painting hanging above the headboard off the wall. Taped behind the landscape were several thin bundles of cash in various denominations. Not even Dale knew about this stash. It was the money she was saving for her baby fund. She wouldn't be needing it for a long while now. Maureen stuffed the bills into another side pocket of the backpack and zipped it shut. She hefted the backpack onto her shoulders and raced back down the stairs, looking around one last time. This was the house she had grown up in, the one she had once hoped to raise her own family in. She pulled open the front door to find Liam standing in front of her. Going somewhere, Marie? he asked. She didn't respond, not knowing if she could still trust him. Lucky I caught you. I got lost on the way over. The two of them stared at each other for a moment. We need to talk, he said. What's there to talk about? Dale got arrested because of you, she replied. Liam shook his head. It wasn't my fault. I paged you as soon as I could. Maureen regarded him suspiciously, wondering if their inside man had turned on them. But what would he have to gain? Instead of his share of their haul, he'd end up with nothing and risk getting exposed as an accomplice. Well, now Dale is going to jail. Unless he talks and gives us up. Maureen shook her head. He won't do that. How much should you get out? One bag, half cash, half safe deposit boxes. Is that it on your back? No, it's in a safe place. They're going to search the house. 
They won't find it. Liam looked down at her boots and noticed the remnants of leaves and dirt. Does Dale know where it is? He'll know, she said confidently and moved to leave the house. The man blocked her way. Just tell me where it is, in case something happens to you. Yeah, right, she said. A siren sounded in the distance. Maureen glared at Liam. Hey, it wasn't me. Someone down at the station must have recognized him. Maureen pushed her way past Liam toward the car. That's a mistake, he warned. They know who he is, they know who you are, and we'll have a bolo out for your car. Maureen froze. Go out the back, Liam suggested. Can you make it up over the mountain to the fire road? She nodded. Then go. I'll stall them, he said. Maureen retreated back into the house, closing the door behind her and raced toward the kitchen. She wasn't used to navigating the house with a backpack on, and when she tried to pass through, the frame of her pack caught on the doorway and knocked her off her feet. Her head smacked into the hardwood floor, stunning her for a moment. Outside, Liam drew his gun, letting it hang in his side, and stepped down off the front porch just as two cars pulled up with more on the way. "'McDonald, what are you doing here?' one of them asked. "'I heard the bolo on the radio. She must have gotten here just before me.' "'We'll cover the back.' One of the officers said, signaling to his partner. They each moved in a different direction to circle around the house. Had she gotten out? If they caught her, would she talk? She might be armed, Liam warned the officers. They acknowledged his warning and drew their guns as they continued around the sides of the house. Inside, Maureen cursed. She had overheard Liam. What was he trying to do? Get her shot? The question was its own answer. She never really had trusted Liam, but Dale had insisted they could count on him and according to the mysterious mastermind, they had needed someone inside the police department to make the whole thing work. A lot of good that did them. What was he trying to hope by killing her? Split the money with Dale? Were they in it together? No, that wasn't possible. Maureen shook off the pack and got to her feet. She grabbed the bundles of cash from the side pocket and shoved them in her pockets. She dug out the cardboard box and took a moment to peek under the lid. It was filled with family photos, some going back to her great-grandparents. She tucked it under her arm and stepped toward the kitchen. Through the window, she could see the police converging on the back door. Maureen turned toward the front door. The sound of additional sirens approaching was loud and clear. She grabbed a pen and a pad of paper from next to the phone and ran through the living room back up the stairs to the landing on the second floor. She pulled on the chain that lowered the steps to the attic and climbed up into the hot, musty space, pulling up the ladder after her. She stepped over the jumble of boxes and old furniture toward a window. Just outside were the thick branches of an old oak tree behind the house and the woods next to it. It was an escape route she had used as a teenager to sneak out after her parents' curfew. Now it was her last chance to get away. Marine tucked the box of photos into a space between the wallboards. She'd come back for them someday, but she couldn't take them with her now. She scribbled a note on the pad, folded it, and dropped it into the same hole. It was a hiding place she had used for a scavenger hunt she had created for Dale on their first anniversary. He pretended to hate having to follow the clues around the house, but didn't complain when he solved the last one that led to their bedroom. Hopefully, he would think to look here in case she didn't make it. She lifted the sash and cautiously looked outside. There was no one in the side yard. She crawled out onto the branch, clutching the rough bark with her hands while she crawled out onto the bow. It bore her weight easily. Maureen took a moment to evaluate her options. The old oak's canopy would help hide her while she made her way to the adjacent trees. She could then descend into the forest while the police still searched for her in the house. By the time they discovered her means of escape, she would be miles away, hopefully in a cab of a trucker not averse to picking up a hitchhiker. She's not in the kitchen, a voice shouted. Get some men in the yard. 
When are those dogs getting here? She's got a gun, a voice warned. Maureen spun around, trying to hold her hands up to show she wasn't armed. There was someone looking up at her. She couldn't quite make out who. Then a loud crack. Shots fired, one of the officers shouted. Maureen felt a sharp pain in her chest. She looked down and saw a red spot on her shirt. It grew as blood from the bullet hole soaked into the fabric. The world went dark. The last thing she remembered was falling. Thank you for listening to Afterlife, a rainy day investigation on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs fiction podcast. Remember to subscribe, share, rate, and review not only this podcast, but the novel you are currently listening to. The links to Amazon, Audible, and Goodreads are in the description for this episode. You can sign up for the Insomniacs newsletter at bedtimestories.studio and get a free bookmark. And if you want to know more about the Rainy Day Investigations Paranormal Mystery Book Series, visit rainyanday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. You can find out more about the host of Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs at richhosick.com. Thanks again, and all the very best.